0: Welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. If I can just have up on the screen, please, um, where should we start? Let's start with Psalm 111, verse 10. Uh, I bring greetings from your cousins at Coastlands. And uh, it is an honor, a huge privilege to speak here today. Thank you for the privilege, Tony. I really mean it. Really, really mean it. I know you you meant to say that wherever you go. And maybe, just maybe, I've been guilty once or twice of saying it was a privilege out of politeness. Um, You're standing looking at a group of people that really don't want you there. And you go, it's a real privilege to be here today. But inside you're going, oh my God, where's the door? And how do I get out if I need to? Uh, But today it really is a privilege. And Psalm 111 verse 10 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Can I have Proverbs 1 verse 7 up on the screen, please? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Those two verses whilst being slightly different, have a root in their introduction that's really, really similar, and that is that the fear of the Lord is something. One of them says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the other says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We know this, that knowledge and wisdom, whilst being related to each other, are two different things. They both are really, really helpful, um, but they are different. We know that knowledge can come In a number of ways. Knowledge can come from reading. Knowledge can come from conversation. Knowing something about someone or something can come from FaceTime and asking questions and studying. I gained knowledge today, even before the service, just watching how you guys do stuff. Um, I I gained knowledge a little bit more of a a glimpse of your heart by being exposed to you. And so we know that knowledge grows that way. We know that wisdom, though, is something that we only get from asking God. Um, We know that we cry out to God for wisdom and He gives us wisdom. We know that. That wisdom, in some ways, is maybe a little more essential than knowledge because wisdom helps us to take knowledge and know what to do with it. Let me give you an illustration. I know tons of people, and you might as well, that are just absolutely brilliant. Like they know so much. They were born with an incredible ability to like retain a whole bunch of information or they're inventive or they have some kind of skill that is just totally disproportionate to anyone else. But if they don't have wisdom, often they, they remain completely ineffective and become more of a frustration than anything because they don't have the wisdom to implement it. Some of the world's most dangerous people historically, dictators and rulers that have caused huge amounts of damage have actually been really brilliant people that didn't have the wisdom to take that God-given gift that they have and implement it in such a way that they could leave a legacy for generations to generations. So, we know that knowledge and wisdom are both really, really handy. We know we should be crying out for wisdom as well as knowledge because we could have all the knowledge in the world, but if we don't know what to do with it, all we're going to do is frustrate ourselves and others. But we know that according to scripture, that both of those things, which you'd have to say are hugely important things, have this as their beginning and their root the fear of the Lord. This is a really, really big deal. It might not seem like the sexiest two verses in the world to start with, but I tell you what, when you get them as a grid for your life, just these two things, you can appropriate it to any part of theology. You can appropriate it to any part of cultural study. You can appropriate it to any gift, anything that you will ever participate in. They have this as their root. The fear of the Lord is the genesis, the beginning of, the starting point, the compass of our knowledge and our wisdom. Okay, JD, that's cool, but what does that really mean? So glad you asked. I really believe that a lot of people have had their knowledge and their wisdom, even in the church, even people that have sung songs, tithed, high-fived, all that kind of stuff in church culture, gone to church camps and done all those wonderful things. I believe there's a whole bunch of people that would be able to recite even those verses. But the implication of it hasn't become precious to them. Let me give you an illustration. Let's take um, tithing. Everyone's like, oh my God, he went there. Tony, I'm not going to blow that introduction of, we're not trying to take everyone's money. I'm, 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 but let's, let's, let's take it. If, if our cultural experience is the beginning of our conviction on generosity, And what we feel and the knowledge that we've come to through brokenness and a whole bunch of misunderstanding becomes the beginning of our wisdom or our knowledge in that area of generosity, then we always have a subjective theology around it that is more about what's going on in our broken world than the purity of what God delivered. Let's take adoption. You and I, let's, let's go to justification first. You and I are justified by faith. In other words, God has said, I declare you as innocent because of your belief in my son. That's it. That's all we have to offer him is our belief in Jesus. We are justified by our faith in him. But if we don't believe that, if what God has declared is not the genesis, if the fear of the Lord, the awe and reverence of what He said is not the beginning of our wisdom on justification, we can start to believe that it's by good works that we are saved. We can start to believe little tones that might creep in at times that somehow we can earn the favor of God. But when the fear of the Lord, awe and humility of the Lord, that's what fear means, not scared, terror, Awe and humility, when that's the start of our belief on justification, we start saying this, what do you say, God? Not what am I hearing out there, what do you say, God? And you, the same God who declared creation into being, just as real as that tree is out there, that I'll walk out and behold because you spoke, your trustworthy voice formed it with the power of your word. Same goes for my justification, you spoke innocence over me. You spoke eternity over me. And so the fear of the Lord is going to be the beginning of my knowledge and my wisdom. Adoption. This is what I want to talk about today. That you and I are not only justified. God didn't just say when we received Christ, and depending on your theology, He stole your heart, you gave it to Him. Whatever way you believe, ultimately, right now you're saved and you're in Him. If you believe that you are justified but not adopted... In other words, you can worship and you're clean, but you haven't been brought in as a son or a daughter of God, I would say to you, I believe the greatest thing that you could ever do is submit your view of sonship, daughtership, adoption, belonging to the fear of the Lord and letting that be the beginning of your wisdom and your knowledge on that subject. And I love it. It's not just the wisdom of, you know, I'll be able to take that on for the rest of my life, but the knowledge, the knowing. I absolutely know, and I am growing in wisdom around this, that the fear of the Lord, you say, God, I don't only belong in terms of a worshiper, I belong in terms of a son or a daughter, and that is going to be my wisdom and understanding for the rest of my life. If you don't start at the fear of the Lord, you start saying stuff like this, my life really sucks, I'm having a tough day, I don't know if I'm God's kid. I don't feel your presence. How many of you have ever been there? I don't feel this incredible smile this morning of heaven over me. I didn't wake up with that warmth and that peace when I put my head on the pillow last night that I am a son or daughter of God. And you start letting your wisdom and your knowledge around a subjective theology, a projective theology. This is how I feel, so it must be true of you, God. And so many of us do that at times around things that will never change, have never changed. And if we understood that the fear of the Lord on those topics, what you have said, God, is what ultimately is going to transform me, not I'm going to throw my opinion on what I see of you and try to transform my theology, suddenly we start to live in safety and security. Let me give you another illustration. And I know I'm, I'm dancing on some tender water here, but if you had like a really bad dad, If you had like a dad that wasn't there or a mom that wasn't there or there was some sort of abuse in your past, and I say this tenderly because I know there's people in the room that have faced such horrendous things. But if you don't understand that in your adoption and in your belonging that the fear of the Lord is to be the beginning of that wisdom of what it means to belong, you can start doing this to God. You can start saying, you know, I wasn't raised that well. So when I talk about you as my father or my dad, I start to project onto you, God, an image of brokenness, an image of insecurity, an image of abandonment, an image of rejection. But God says, "Hey, you know, whatever has happened in broken human relationships here on this Earth, let the fear of me, let awe and humility of what I say be the beginning, the beginning, the starting point, reverse back over all life's experience, and let your life literally be transformed by an understanding that I have called you my son and I've called you my daughter." I love that. Right. So Victory, I came um, an hour this morning to tell you this, something you probably already know, I'm sure, but I wanted to rave in it, and it's gonna lead into the ordination time so perfectly and appropriately, I believe. Um, I wanted to tell you this morning that you are not only favored in the sense of being saved and forgiven. You are not only favored in the sense of you will spend eternity looking at God, joining with God in loving God, joining with all the angels in worshiping God seeing God, having unrestricted access to all of God, joining in the purpose of all time. Long before there was a you and a me, there was a him who was always being adored in eternity's past, in eternity's future. We will always be worshiping him. We have that, that is awesome. But beyond that, in the here and now, as Tony says, I believe that our worship is to be driven by an understanding of the fact that we are not only justified and declared clean, We are brought in as sons and daughters to a Father in heaven who loves us passionately. Let's go to Romans chapter 8 if we can. And God, as we do that, let the fear of the Lord be the beginning of our wisdom in adoption. May it transform mindsets that we might have brought into this place this morning in Jesus' name. Romans chapter 8 Verse 1, we're going to skip through some verses for the sake of time. Romans 8 verse 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, not those who date, not those who scream at Him. For those who are in Christ Jesus, the language is one of being enveloped. Even in that, I start to see the wonder of belonging and adopting and being adopted. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In other words, the law of Sinai has been replaced with another law under grace. This is really, really important to get because the thing about a law is that it has conditions and it has an authority behind it, and there is a set of ramifications behind any law. When somebody quotes a law at you, ultimately there is a force of authority behind it that sets it in order and holds it in order, and the law of the spirit of life is literally held by the spirit of life. A lot of people kind of go from a legalistic appropriation of what it means to belong to Christ into this understanding of the law of the spirit of life. But under grace, they're always wondering, am I saved? saved?" The law of the spirit of life, with all of its ramifications of eternity and assurance and adoption, is literally holding you as someone who has said yes to Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter how you feel on Monday, you are held by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And all that you can do to earn it is say, yes, I believe in you. I believe in you, Jesus. And I receive the full blessings of what it means to belong to you. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. For God has done what a set of rules and principles could not achieve. Why? Because what God has done is driven by the spirit of life in adoption. Of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, and he's writing to believers, those who have been justified by faith and have been adopted, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells, love this language, dwells. In you. Uh, you know, I, I've got a lot of friends who, um, who, who are chasing kind of glory crowd, cl- clouds around, and, and I want more of God's power, but I want you to know there is a glory cloud living within you that dwells in you, that does not, you know, I watch some people out of desperation saying, oh God, give me your presence, give me your presence, and I'm like, you've already got it. Yes, there are manifestations granted that we're all contending for, signs and wonders and miracles that we're all holding out for. But please, please, oh please, never forsake the promise of the spirit of life, the spirit of adoption who dwells in the believer. The thing about the Holy Spirit is that He transcends everything and yet, in some beautiful way, indwells us at every single moment. It's not one or the other. He lives inside of us. Let's go to verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. In you. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, you start seeing two categories arrive, uh, arise here living by the flesh or living by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all, check this out, who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This is a powerful little phrase. Literally means that if the Holy Spirit indwells you, which we have because we cannot even say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. That confession of belonging to Him gets you into right relationship with God. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling in your life. You are led by the Holy Spirit. And if you are led by the Holy Spirit, one of the things that the Holy Spirit will continually confirm is this. You are a son of God. Girls and boys, you are a son of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, which is one of the names of the Holy Spirit, a title given to the infinite resources and power of the Holy Spirit, an indication of what He will see take place in our life as He leads us. Why? All those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, And you will be led into by the Spirit of adoption, and by Him we cry, "Abba, Father." The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Big truth: those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. In other words, we're adopted. And if we are led by the Spirit of God, one of the things that Romans 8 promises us will happen in our lives is that the Spirit will literally cry through us. And the word for cry is to cry aloud, Abba Father, with conviction. That word cry has nothing to do with intellectualism. That word cry has everything to do with being led by God's sovereignty and power, an inner groaning that you could not force or contrive out of desperation. It's literally put in you by God. So you, as a child of God, have something that the Spirit of God does in you that only God can do. And literally through you, He makes you cry, Dad! Book of Romans tells us two things about this, that daily the Holy Spirit pours the love of the Father into us, and daily the Spirit of God teaches us to cry, Dad. One of the things I guarantee you, yes, healing, yes, signs and wonders and miracles, yes, fruit, yes, gifts, all those things. But one of the things that we've so often forgotten in the mix in our pursuit of all the external things we could see is this, that if you truly belong to God, one of the things that the Spirit of God will do in you will make you say, you're my dad. It doesn't matter what I've seen of dads on this earth. It doesn't matter what I've received in terms of absence or perversion. You are my dad. You are my perfect dad. You transcend any picture of any dad that I've seen on this earth. And at the exact same time, according to Romans 10, he pours the love of the Father in us. He takes us down the street of saying, I love you. I love you. You're my dad. You're my dad. I love you. I love you. You're my dad. You're my dad. The Spirit of God wants that for us. That is the terms of relationship that God wants to have with His church. He doesn't want to date you on Sunday, every day of the week. He wants you to know, I am your dad, I love you. And through Him, not by you, through Him, when you're in line with Him, He's going to go, Dad, Dad, I love you, I love you, Dad, Dad, I love you, I love you. All of that done by God, not you. How cool is that? I mean, think about this for a second, right? If I was just saved, like the fire insurance salvation that so many people preach, and I just got to escape hell, I would say, I know me. That was a good deal. (laughs) I mean, think about it, right? And God's done that. And he says there's more right now. So let's go further. If, if, If beyond that, God says, I tell you what, I won't only not damn you I will let you stay outside of the wall of New Jerusalem and peer over for all of eternity, I would say, now this is too good. And he's done that. And more. If he had said to me, I will not only not damn you, I will not only let you see over the wall of New Jerusalem as to what's going on for all of eternity, but I will let you in to observe and to worship and to see my face. I would say that's just too much. Oh my God, I know me. That's just too much. And he's done that and more. If he was to say beyond not damning you, beyond letting you see over the wall of, the New, of New Jerusalem, letting you through the gate and letting you see me face to face. And if, if he went beyond that and said, and you can come close and you can taste of my delights and you can worship me and see me and know me fully for all of eternity, I would say, God, now you have gone recklessly too far in your grace. And he did. And more. Because he gives us a gift Even on the earth, called now. And he says, Yes, those heavenly delights await you. Yes, that unrestricted second coming and all of its fruit is going to be the portion of those who believe in me. But right now on the earth, he says, If you will let the fear of the Lord be your wisdom on adoption, I will teach you what it means to truly belong. To truly belong. And your passion for the church will not be derived out of energy and great things that are going on. As awesome as that is, you will enjoy those things from a greater place. A place that no one else can touch. A place that no one can pervert. A place where God says, if you let my spirit lead you like he will, he will lead you to a place of screaming aloud, Dad, and pouring the love of the Father into you. Check this out. We just read this. The Bible says, in fact, the spirit himself bears witness to the fact that we are the sons of God. This is a really, really big day, a really, really big deal, right? It is a big day too, but it's a big deal. Because check this out, when Paul wrote this, adoption ceremonies looked very different to how they do today. We all think about adoption and we we think, okay, today, an adoption's awesome. I congratulate anyone who has been adopted or anyone who has adopted. I think it is a profound outworking of the gospel taking place in your life. And it's something that more people should aspire to so more kids have homes, right, and are loved and are shown the gospel inside the the beauty of, of, of a whole family. But Paul wrote in a day when a child was never adopted as a baby. And the only people that could adopt were really, really wealthy people. And the primary purpose of the adoption process 2,000 years ago in Rome looked something like this. A very, very rich couple that couldn't have kids picked the healthiest and best young adult that they could find for the primary purpose of pouring out all their inheritance on them when they left that they could train up someone who would be like-minded and like-hearted and give them everything as they died. And an adoption ceremony literally looked like this. When a child was chosen to be the one who would be adopted, eight witnesses were invited to a ceremony. And those eight people would come, and the father of the person who was going to be adopted said this. He said, if anyone contests, this was the primary purpose of this adoption sermon, if anybody contests in my departure because I'm wealthy and they're all going to fight for my estate, if anybody contests that this child is not mine, one of the eight of you has to step forward and say, I was there. And eight were chosen so there would be no gap. There would be no chance for anything to go wrong. There would be an assurance of adoption no matter what the accusation was. So literally, when Paul says the Spirit himself bears witness to this adoption, the picture that he has in his mind is the Spirit of God, if anyone stands and says, I know you're not adopted, the Spirit of God steps in and says, hang on! That is the one that I, tra- that I taught to cry out, Abba, Father. That is the one that I pour the love of the Father on. If anyone stands up against someone who is justified by faith, not performance and says, you're not saved, I know you're not saved, literally the Spirit of God Himself, not even a pastor, right? The Spirit of God Himself stands before God, stands before the accusation and says, I bear witness to the fact that that person is not only a worshipper for all of eternity, but a son right now. And you might be going, okay, but, but why is this important? It is Everything. Because in the in-betweens of God's suddenlies, in the big questions when you lay your head on the pillow at night and your heart's beating a million miles an hour, in the moments where revival and renewal isn't happening in your life, they will come over the span of a long life in all of the good. In those moments, a believer has nothing to fear because we're justified by faith. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. The Spirit of God bears witness to the fact that you're adopted. And the spirit of adoption by title and power will continually lead you closer to scream, Dad. How beautiful is that? That to me says, God, there is a certain way you want to relate to people. And I don't want anything less than that. I am a churchgoer. But more importantly than that, I'm your boy. Is this all right, bro? I wish I could read from verse 18 onwards because it's just this beautiful unfolding that I think helps believers with discouragement. Paul talks about the now and the not yet. He says things like, we are sons and we're being adopted. The the Hebrew illustration is a man looking at a horizon, knowing he's going to receive it. Sometimes we don't feel adopted, but we are. Let's pick up in verse 31, and I close with these few verses. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? I just want to pause for a second and say the first eight chapters of Romans, which have led us to this first question, are some of the most theologically profound truths that we could ever find. I mean, people study lifetimes of of theological study around these truths and these principles. Some of them are seemingly conflicting. He's dealing with law and grace. He's dealing with eternity. He's dealing with the brokenness of man. He's dealing with adoption and all kinds of truths. And Paul, who didn't write with little chapters and numbers and subheadings, in one letter gets to this point where the reader of the first eight chapters of Romans is going, oh my goodness, my head is about to explode. And he just chills everyone out for a second. And he says, what shall we say to these things? Good question, Paul. I'm glad you asked it because I'm reading some of this stuff going, oh my goodness. And he just goes, whoa, whoa. whoa. And he asks six questions and he answers them. He says, what shall we say to these things? Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Question one. If God is for us, are we there together? You guys up there? Oh, there you go. Thank you very much. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is, you know, I don't know how you, but I've read that verse before and just thought, okay, I really, really know if, if God is for us, then who can be against us? We all know that one, right? Who's heard that in a prayer meeting and a preach? If God's for us, who? We all quote that one, but we like lose the one right next to it because it just doesn't kind of roll off the tongue as easy. It's kind of one of those awkward verses. But the truth of it is flipping Amazing. Let me put it to you in layman's terms for a guy like me. What Paul's saying is, if the father murdered the son for the sake of your righteousness, don't you think if he went through all of that, he's not going to deliver in totality that which he started? That's literally what that verse means. It means like, who are you to be like, am I saved? Who are you to be like, was the cross really strong enough for my sin? He's like, if the father murdered the son, God killed God, ladies and gentlemen. I know it's offensive, but the gospel's pretty gruesome. Jesus said, no one takes from me what I freely give. He was talking about his crucifixion. So God had everything to do with God's crucifixion. It wasn't like, okay, son, you walk the earth for three years and let's see how you go. Oh my goodness, it's not working. We're going to have to put you on the cross. the, The cross was always going to happen. It was an investment. It was a short-term, painful, inexplicable loss for the Father for an eternal gaining of everyone who would be called God's kids who would now be reconciled to their original purpose, which the book of Revelation tells us is to bring pleasure to God. So Paul says, hey, hey, hey. What shall we say to all this stuff about adoption? What shall we say all this stuff about law and grace and so on? What would he say to all of this? If God is for us, in other words, we're on the winning team with the big guy, who could be against us? doesn't matter who your army is. doesn't matter what political power you sway. If God is for us, who are you to ever try to be against us? He says, I'm going to take this further. If the father murdered the son so that you could be close to him, Don't you think he's gonna finish what he started because it was a pretty big price for him in the first place? And he comes with the next question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He's just building this case, this wall, this insurmountable wall saying, you're my kid, you're my kid, you're my kid. Who can bring charge against you? It's God himself who justified you. The voice that said you are innocent and free was not your mama, your dad who really liked you and just wanted the best for you and told you sweet little lies so you'd get across the line. The voice who said you are innocent was God's. That's a really, really big deal. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. This case is flawless. It is hole proof. Your sonship rests on this. God's for you. Who could be against you? The father let the son die, isn't going to start what he finished. Who shall bring any charge against you? It was God who justified you in the first place. Who's it going to condemn you? Jesus died for this and more than that, was raised for this to show that the power behind the statement is in his resurrection, not only in his crucifixion. And how's this? Who indeed is interceding for us. This is, this is pretty amazing. I, some people might not think this is amazing, but not only did Jesus die for us, not only was he raised so that we could know the Father and know him and know the Spirit full of eternity, Jesus is praying for us. I don't feel saved. Well, Jesus is praying for you. I ate three candy bars. That's it. My salvation is gone. Uh, I, I yelled momentarily. I, Jesus is praying for you. I know some pretty powerful prayer warriors, but Jesus is praying for you. Dude, that's more than good. That's awesome. And I'm almost done, I promise. Who shall separate us? Who shall break, who shall recreate the gulf that Jesus died on the cross to close in the first place? Who shall separate us From the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, Paul pretty much brings up the worst things that can happen in the world and poses this question, could the worst of humanity take you away from the best of God? Last time I checked, famine is one of the most definitive things in our whole planet right now. It is one of the kind of unanswerable things right now that some great people are trying to do something about, but right now, most of the world is in famine. It is a big concept. And Paul holds up a massive problem against salvation and his love and says, could even that separate you from the love of God? Could the the worst mistakes that man has done in a fallen world take you away from the love of Christ? Verse 37. No, no, in all these things, in famine, in death, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, how's the language, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, stop fretting, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in All creation, guys, that's everything, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is nothing in all the world to come that has come. No problem that man has created that could take away the power of God's reckless love shown to us in adoption. The Spirit of God may knock you over in a meeting, but He does something more precious than that every single morning and night. You're God's kid. Cry, Dad. You're God's kid. Cry, Dad. You don't feel like it? Remember who it was that justified you. Through him, all things were created. Everything that you could see as you walk into a forest, fly on a plane, spend your life savings to see the Grand Canyon, God just let like a rock hit something. No big deal. Anything that you could see out there shows me that when God speaks, stuff happens. Creation is a testimony that God speaks and stuff happens. And that same voice, that created every visible quality that you can see of God demonstrated through creation is the same voice that said, you're God's kid. Don't let anyone bring an accusation. Who are they to do so? It is God who justifies. But my dad said, I'm a loser. There is a voice, the voice, That transcends any voice. And I end where I started with this sermon. Will you let the fear of the Lord, His voice, be the beginning of your wisdom and your knowledge, your actualization and the ability to walk in it, of the fact that you are not only a worshiper, you're not only saved, you're not only not going to hell, you're not only going to see His face forever and ever, swim in the river of life. Be in a capital city with a 600,000-story high rise called the New Jerusalem. It's true, according to Revelation. You're going to see all that. But right now, you're God's kid, not just God's participant. Amen. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.